Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. My practice specializes in providing fact-based strategic and risk management advice to clients that are buying, selling, or growing the value of companies and intellectual property. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing, distancing protocols. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also recently launched a new LinkedIn group called A Group That Doesn't Suck. So please join that as well if you would like to engage. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic, today's topic is, should I start a foundation? According to statistics published by Foundation Stats, in 2015, there were 86,000 foundations representing $712 billion in assets. They fund philanthropic projects, scientific research, own real estate, and even make business investments. And we haven't covered foundations at all on this program. And as we get to episode 140, whatever it is, um, I think it's high time we do so because after you hear those statistics, you, you come to recognize that they represent, foundations represent a significant economic force for good, for change, for social development in our society. And um, I, I'm confident, at least by sheer luck, there are at least some individuals that have the wherewithal to either start foundations themselves or uh, significantly fund foundations that are within the sound of the voice of this podcast. And, um, you know, I think Many of us aspire one day to maybe be achieving a, a a level of wealth and success where we can start a foundation. And we may very well discover during the course of today's conversation that it isn't that you don't necessarily have to be a gazillionaire to start a foundation. And I, I think we are going to learn that today. Um, authorized by the IRS as a charitable foundation in 2015, the unique foundation inspires hope in women who are sexually abused as children or adolescents by providing healing services through retreats, support groups, and online resources. They educate and empower parents and caregivers to protect children from sexual abuse through community and online resources. They advocate for open discussions about sexual abuse through community dialogue and social awareness. And joining us today to talk about unique, as well as to talk about foundation creation in general, is Chris Yaden, who joined the Unique Foundation as Executive Director in 2015. Chris is responsible for the executive leadership, effective stewardship of financial resources, planning, fundraising, and reporting at the Unique Foundation. 
He has previously held leadership positions in the startup, technology, and nonprofit industries. He brings a valuable skill set to the organization and is deeply committed to addressing the epidemic of child sexual abuse. Chris plays an important role as a spokesperson for the Unique Foundation. He is a sought-after local speaker and has also been invited to present nationally and internationally. And thanks to being here, he can put podcasts on his, uh, on his checklist. His expertise centers on heightening awareness to the epidemic of child sexual abuse, as well as educating the public on best practices for prevention and the healing services available to survivors. Chris has been featured across several media platforms where he is often requested to contribute as an industry thought leader and expert. Chris considers his family as his greatest accomplishment. He is the grateful father of six children, three boys and three girls. He and his wife, Christy, have been married for 22 years. Well done. Chris Yaden, welcome to the program. Hey, so good to be here with you, Mike. So, Chris, let's start off with a very basic question, but I think it's important because I'm not sure everybody knows the answer to this question that's listening to this podcast. I'm not sure that I know the answer to the question correctly, if I'm being perfectly honest. And that is, what is a foundation? When we hear the word foundation, what should we be thinking of? Yeah, that's an interesting question because foundation can mean many things. Uh, There are public charities that use the word foundation. There are private foundations that use the word foundation. There are corporate foundations that use the word foundation. So the word foundation in and of itself doesn't necessarily designate a certain type of entity. For example, we're called the Unique Foundation. We're actually a public charity. Um, I would say, though, it's most commonly used to describe a certain type of entity, which is a private foundation. Now, that leads nicely to the next question, which is, um, as I was researching for this podcast, it seems like there are actually different types or structures of foundations. So you mentioned we, that perhaps most of us think of a, of a private foundation, but if you're familiar with them, what are the other types of foundations that, um, that fit into this category? Yeah, so you'll, you'll, the two biggest types that you'll see are the private foundations that are often associated with a family and the family's wealth. Uh, so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is an example. Um, but you'll also see foundation often used with corporate foundations. So uh, Chick-fil-A would have a, a corporate foundation. So those are the, the two most common type of uh, private foundations. But again, kind of like I mentioned at the beginning, even some public charities like ours use the term foundation occasionally in their names. And, and, and interestingly, you know, for good or ill, and I'm cer- I certainly don't want to open a debate on this issue, but um, uh, I, I th- you know, foundations can also be used as or have been used in the past as, um, uh, frankly, tax reduction structures. And again, I'm not going to debate as to whether or not that's good or bad, what the policy should be. But interestingly enough, I, I learned that um, uh, when Henry Ford passed away, that he gave most of the shares of the Ford Motor Company to a foundation, a family foundation. Or actually, yeah, it was before he passed away. Um, and then ultimately, um, uh, one of the, 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 the Ford family um, maintained control of that foundation through the board. But then the chairman resigned, I think it was Henry Ford Jr., resigned, 
after some relatively minor dispute with the board, but he sort of got as mad as hell and he wouldn't take any more, that sort of thing. And then in doing so, lost control of the Ford family fortune. Um, they are only worth a fraction of what their worth actually had been, say, in the 1950s until he did that. But, you know, and, and Henry Ford was known for, among other things, he just saw avoiding taxes as a, a patriotic duty, right? It, it went beyond just financial. It was, uh, he just thought that the government had no right to take his money under discussion. That's why he created the foundation. And, um, but, you know, back in the day, it wasn't that easy to create a foundation that would effectively be a, a tax avoidance scheme. And, and the second that that loophole was, um, was passed through by Ford Jr., the Ford family lost that, a lot of that wealth. Now they still hold on to the Detroit Lions. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. We'll have to let other people decide. Maybe the second prize is holding on to two Detroit Lions, but, um, <laughs> um, kind of interesting how, how a, a foundation and the governance of a foundation actually altered the altered the course of the Ford family fortune. Yeah, it you know, it, and it brings up a really important thing for us to acknowledge around uh, private foundations is they almost always have a dual purpose. Most foundations genuinely want to do good, but it's not just about doing good; it's about doing good business as well and protecting their assets and ensuring that those assets can live in some level of perpetuity. And so, yes, there are tax advantages. Uh, They're highly regulated because of that. As opposed to a public charity, uh, public charities are are more scrutinized by the public because uh, of the type of structure that they are, whereas a private foundation has more regulatory requirements and more scrutiny from governing bodies. So, uh, they both have their purpose, and when you when you look at a private foundation, anybody should look at that private foundation and understand that they are dual purpose. Uh, they're protecting assets for the family, uh, uh, dealing with with uh, the tax implications of those assets, while also doing good uh, by giving to public charities like ours. And if you know, if if my memory serves, you were the you were if not one of the founders, maybe the founder of the Unique Foundation, correct? Well, I was the first employee. I'll I'll give founder credit where it belongs, and that's to our two founding board members that infused a significant amount of wealth into what we did. Um, But me, along with those two, uh, started on day one. And and we fundamentally were grappling with some of these decisions on day one. Should we be a corporate foundation? Should we be a private foundation? Should we be a public charity? Ultimately, we landed on public charity for for very clear and specific reasons, but all things were on the table when we first considered it. So I I, I don't want to get too much in in your business and and ask unfair questions, but to the extent that you're able to disclose it, can you you talk a little bit about the calculus of of reaching that decision on the structure that you have and and what those considerations were and and why it was that ultimately, ultimately led you to your current structure? Yeah, so a couple a couple of things. First of all, we knew we wanted to provide direct uh, services to those people that uh, that we wanted to serve. Typically, fi- private foundations, uh, most of them do not provide direct services. Uh, there's a there's a particular type of, of private foundation that does, but most don't. And so that that was that was the first point. But even with that point, we still had an option to stay a, a private foundation. But for us. 
we knew the topic of sexual abuse was so broad and had penetrated so deeply into our uh, country, into our communities, and even internationally, worldwide, that we needed broad-based support from the public. And you generally don't get broad-based public support as a private foundation. It's almost always funded by a small handful of individuals, whereas we needed combined funding both from high net worth individuals, including our founders, as well as uh, the general public pitching in to help address our, our our issue that we wanted to address. Oh, that's interesting. So <clears throat> if I can read back to you what I think I heard, foundations tend to be kind of, if you will, kind of more closed entities, like a more closely held entity, perhaps within a single family. They don't need outside support. They don't want outside support. They don't want outside influence, probably. Whereas a public charity recognizes that it needs resources that can leverage beyond what the founders are able to provide on their own. That's correct. You just nailed it. And and those those private foundations hold things closely because most of the money they give away is generated by investment uh, returns from the assets that they've placed into the foundation. So Which they want to manage those closely as a, a family or a small group rather than having the the public weigh in on how those should be managed or dealt with. And and those assets might become more commonly thought of as an endowment, I guess. Yeah. There's many different vehicles they use, but endowments are certainly one. Okay. So um, when, when you guys started unique, um, what, what made you feel like you had to start your own entity versus throwing your considerable resource and influence behind an existing entity. Cause I, I know you're not the only foundation that addresses this problem. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad you're doing it. And the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned, but clearly at some point, somebody asked a question, why do we have to do this ourselves and have our own infrastructure? Why don't we find a really good, if there is one, a really good entity and write them, you know, support them financially. Yeah. It's a great question. And you might find me speaking out of both sides of my mouth here for a minute. I am a huge advocate of individuals that have wealth of finding existing causes rather than starting their own. There's uh, uh, way too many nonprofits that exist already. And many of those nonprofits uh, are, are really struggling, but the few that are actually having impact, they always need more resource resource. So I would always recommend to a person of wealth to find a high quality nonprofit that can prove that they're having impact and shuffle uh, shovel their resources into those causes that they feel like they can get behind. But we didn't do that. And here's the simple reason. Uh, the topic of sexual abuse was being addressed by many other nonprofits, but there is a very specific segment of sexual abuse survivors that was not being addressed effectively. And that was adult survivors who are sexually abused as children that were dealing with post-traumatic stress. They don't really have resources outside of going to an individual therapist. There's a lot of nonprofits and resources in communities that help children who are being abused. There's a lot of resources that help uh, women who are currently going through domestic violence, including sexual violence. But there were very few resources for adult women who were sexually abused as children. They didn't have options. 
And we felt strongly because of the size of that demographic, there needed to be a champion in that area. And we decided we needed to be the one to lead that effort. So in that regard, it sounds very much like very much like a business decision. Should I start a business or should I invest in other businesses that already exist? Yeah, identical, identical thinking. I mean, the nuances are different, but the strategic thinking behind it uh, is identical. I've spent much of my career in in for-profit startups, so I know both sides. I know both the nonprofit and for-profit sides when it comes to early stage investing, and it's remarkably similar. And I want, I'm, you know, I wonder if that's why there there seem to be a lot of technology entrepreneurs that are drawn to foundations, right? And in effect, it it's a startup, but a startup with a different ultimate bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's uh, if you if you go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know the the one that was added after the fact was. Uh, really based on uh, this principle of when everything in my world has been met and I've reached self-actualization, what happens? Well, I turn around and give back. And so for people that are of high net worth, have been successful in their, their careers, where their needs have been met up and down, it's, it's no wonder they have a desire to give back and they're, they're intelligent people. And they often feel like they can do it better than the next person. And in some cases, that's true. And in some cases, it, it would be better for them to jump in as an investor in these these causes that are already doing good. So how, how does one, let, let's say somebody's now checking off the boxes and they think they found, a, they found an unmet niche that they, they need to start something as opposed to backing something that already exists. At a high level, can you describe the, the the process of starting a foundation? Yeah. Step one, uh, it, and and I would strongly discourage anybody from from skipping this step. Secure top notch legal counsel and top notch accounting counsel. Um, those those are the two critical pieces, and you specifically want to look for practices that specialize in nonprofit work. If you have those and the start of a board, meaning the, the, the core of that board of directors that's going to start this, you have what you need to start having the strategic discussions of what's next. But I wouldn't even take a single step without engaging that legal and, and, and financial counsel. Now, you, you make an emphasis on, on top notch. Can, can I infer that there's a there's a story that you're aware of where somebody didn't use top notch counsel and they got burned by it? Well, everybody has a friend or an uncle or a college roommate that uh, you know is an accountant or an attorney, but their practice may not be in nonprofit. Yep, and um, they know enough and can do enough to get you registered, but you they're not going to be there to warn you of the problems that are coming. If you don't set up your entity, right. And start your governance on day one in the right, right way. And I've seen many nonprofits get into all sorts of trouble when they rely on, you know, their uncle, that's a tax accountant for, you know, mom and pop stores on main street who has zero 
uh, zero experience in nonprofit and they're their tax uh, ad- advice for their nonprofit it just doesn't work. Um, it may work if the nonprofit stays small with little to no impact, but the moment they start growing, they'll be, they'll be in a mess if they don't do it right on day one. Especially since, and correct me, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, I think registering the foundation is the easy part. I mean, that's the part where almost anybody can kind of look up the rules. And that's probably what that tax accountant did was look up the rules and then just, and then just set it up, right? It's about setting it up the right way. Yeah, where you don't create liability for the foundation founders, board of directors, and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, it's it's pretty simple to get it through and and approved by the IRS. Um, even even non professionals do it often, and and people think that that's enough. And and frankly, it's it's not pretty to them to to spend money on legal or spend money on accounting. But uh, I can't emphasize enough how critical it is. They won't feel the pain of it till year two or three if they do it wrong, but they will feel the pain of it if they yep. do it wrong. So what, what are some of those risks? When, when, when one starts a foundation, and certainly this is something you've, you've given a lot of thought to, I'm sure, and it probably is on your mind daily. What are the risks associated with starting a foundation? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just give you one example. Charitable solicitation laws. Um, every state... There's variances and differences in how you solicit funds. Um, and, you know, for a, a, a small nonprofit that's, that's invisible, uh, there's probably not going to be too many regulatory bodies that, that care. Um, but like I said, if, if someone's aspirational in wanting to have a nonprofit that actually has significant impact and growth and influence, those uh, regulatory bodies are going to watch and keep an eye on them. So if I don't have good counsel to help me know that I've got to register in, in these 50 states if I'm going to solicit funds and to know how to register, I can get in all sorts of hot water uh, with the way I solicit funds uh, from, from donors. And, and, you know, then I've spent money that, that I'm getting, um, you know, getting scrutiny on and I don't have recourse and, It'll call me, cause me all sorts of problems. So there's one simple example of of what I'm talking about. And and donors to foundations really don't like their money being spent on lawyers to clean up compliance, right? That, that's that's right. not what they're in it for. They they want they they want their money to be spent effectively on programs, and they want a high percentage of it to be focused on programs. So we've we've touched a little bit on on how you fund. A foundation. So I'd like to switch to the other side now in terms of how foundations grant or give money. Um, are there any are there any restrictions on the kinds of activities that a foundation can fund or entities that that a foundation can give money to? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, private foundations are going to give to five hundred one c three public charities. Uh, that's going to be the most common. Uh, they typically uh, have a requirement to give. Uh, 5% of whatever their, their nut or their egg is that, that they're, they're investing. So if I have a hundred million, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be required to give 5 million a year. Um, now, obviously that hundred million is we hope growing and uh, grows at a pace that not only 
meets that five million but exceeds it, so that that uh, that that the nut gets bigger over time. Um, but there is a requirement to give a certain percentage. There are you know more detailed requirements and how it's given and documented. But those those are the highest level basics that govern giving. Uh, that's in- interesting. I did not know about the five percent rule, and so that has interesting uh, uh, implications for investment policy, right? Generally speaking, I mean, you know, you can't get anywhere. You can't sniff five percent on risk-free assets like you could in the good old days, right? So you've got to be, you got to apply some intellectual horsepower and in how you're going to have a portfolio that generates at least five percent a year. Yeah, for most. For most private foundations, it, it they have an investment practice. It doesn't necessarily have to be a large one, but obviously, depending on the size of of the funds that they have, it it can dictate how how involved that strategy is. But no, it's it's not they're they're not just sitting on their hands when it comes to their investment strategy. And is that five percent measured on on a year to year basis, or is there a provision where, say, if you have a bad year? And you're trying to pre- preserve capital that you can catch up the next year. How, how does that work? Yeah, you're you're getting into an area where I'm not as solid in my expertise. You know, as okay. a, a public charity, we interact with private foundations heavily, so I know a lot of the regulatory uh, areas around them. But that particular question, I don't I don't want to mislead somebody on because I'm not sure I know the answer to that one. All right, fair enough. So our our, our audience can Google it. I'm sure it's out yeah. there. Um, so in, in, are, are there, are there best practices in terms of, of governance for a foundation to maximize the likelihood that it will be successful? Yeah. And if so, so what are they? Yeah. Specific to the giving portion of it. Uh, the most important thing that is emerging and growing right now is the role of private foundations in helping charities uh, effectively partner with other community organizations. So you're seeing a lot more in private foundations where they're um, funding grants that encourage partnerships across uh, intersectional uh, areas of nonprofits. I'll give you a great example of this. We we work closely with a group called uh, Stand Together. Uh, They work to eradicate poverty And they do so by enlarging and strengthening public charities that they work with. So they actually apply good business practices and training as well as their giving strategy to encourage these nonprofits to scale and grow effectively, as well as partner with other charities that are working to eradicate poverty. So you're seeing rather than them just kind of sit back and, and hand out checks, you're seeing them get more involved strategically. Uh, with their giving and using their giving to influence uh, public charity strategy. And I would consider that uh, uh, an emerging best practice. A couple others at the highest level, uh, obviously good scrutiny and reporting from the charity itself is critical for foundations uh, to to ensure that their money is being used effectively. Um, Being clear about what type or what stage a charity is when they invest, if it's early stage, they know they're investing and may not get a quote unquote return on that investment because they're investing, 
in early stage to get a charity ready to have impact. But later stage charities, they're looking for actual tangible numbers on, you know, for every dollar they gave, what type of impact did it actually have on the people that they served? So, uh, you know, good, good, clear direction on uh, when they give to a charity, what the actual strategic goal of that gift is. Now, I've I've served on a few nonprofit boards in, in, in my time. And one of the things I've, I've noticed as an emerging trend is foundations are looking for charities to become a little bit more self-sustainable, that, that they don't want to, they don't want to sort of be a constant, for lack of a better term, sort of a welfare check forever, but rather they'd like their money to, to be this something that seeds a program that, that somehow can at least offset some of its expenses with organic revenue if not be self-sustaining entirely, is that something you're seeing as well? And, and and if so, why have foundations kind of moved in that direction? Yeah, it comes in it comes in several different flavors. So there are certain charities based on the people they serve that can actually uh, start uh, you know businesses within that charity that then uh, return revenue that that allows it to perpetuate itself. That is definitely appealing to private foundations. Um, where where there are charities that don't have that opportunity or luxury, there's still a principle here that charities are looking for, and that is what else is that public or sorry that private foundations are looking for, and that is what is that charity doing to have recurring or stable revenue. So the emergence of the five dollar a month monthly donor is a great example of that. So a small public charity, a private foundation is going to be interested to know, hey, how much money is coming from, you know, Joe Public and uh, how many of those are on a a recurring basis? How many uh, supporters do you have out there that are giving to your charity $5 a month? It very much becomes a recurring revenue source and private foundations are looking at that. And whether those charities are growing that particular revenue stream to ensure that that charity is sustainable beyond just the large checks that private foundations tend to write. Now, at the outset of this conversation, you you alluded to um, the fact that that foundations are subject to some some oversight, um, which which makes sense. Um, can you talk a little bit again at a high level? It's not fair to ask you to be too detailed. I mean, you're not that kind of expert, I don't think. But at a high level, what 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 kind of oversight are foundations subject to themselves? Yeah, so private foundations are uh, subject to uh, specifically um, dealings uh, uh, with 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 related parties. That's the biggest one. So. Uh, you know they they're they're looking to see hey is 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 this person using the private foundation basically to funnel money into their uh, business interests and uh, that's going to cause a private foundation a lot of problems so that's the biggest one uh, and nothing else is really even close to it uh, what I would say. Uh, are the other ones that maybe not as close, but but pop up or definitely uh, how much are they giving? Uh, who are they giving to? Uh, just making sure all those boxes check. But the 
the self-dealing aspect of the oversight is by far the most critical piece of it. Now, is anyone allowed to start a foundation? Could I just decide I'm going to start a foundation or are there certain criteria that one has to meet before one is allowed to start one? Yeah, I mean, technically, yes, anybody can can start one. Generally speaking, though, the 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 big biggest rule of thumb is that that there is a five million dollar or more um, nut that's put into that private foundation as a starting point. Obviously, many are much larger than that, but that you know, as you talk to people that define best practices in the space, tend to put uh, around five million, give or take a little bit, as as that starting point. And do 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 foundations have owners per se? You know, somebody that can say this is my foundation or this foundation belongs to me or to this entity, to this vehicle, whatever. Is there a concept of ownership in a foundation structure? Not not ownership in the business sense. I, I mean, definitely governance. So, uh, and when you're looking at a private foundation, that governance is more similar to ownership, uh, though it's still not technically ownership. When you get to a public charity, it is very far away from ownership. It is governed by a, a board that uh, has a certain number of board members that represent the public, and that that board provides that governance or decision-making, and there's no ownership power over it. Uh, so it depends a little bit whether it's a charity or a private foundation, but neither of them technically would have owners and the further away or the the closer you get to a public charity, the the further away you get from ownership principles. So, how much um, how much flexibility or leeway do foundations have in terms of setting their own governance rules? Can do they have a lot of lee- latitude in terms of how they structure it, or are, are there fairly rigid rules um, to which most foundations must adhere? Yeah, when 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 you talk about uh, the public charity side of it, there are pretty significant uh, rule sets set by the IRS in the code uh, that that govern what we do. Um, uh, you know, in terms of governance around strategy or strategic thinking, there's a lot of flexibility. But when it comes to uh, finance and legal, you're going to see a lot more. Uh, structure and regulation. And though I'm not as familiar with that in private foundations, uh, I believe it's substantially similar. Now, you mentioned that that the distinction between a foundation and a public charity, are there instances in which a foundation decides it would be better off as a public charity? And if so, are you aware if there's a mechanism to convert it as opposed to say having to shut down the foundation and start all over again with a brand new public charity. Yeah, so the the in between between the two is is referred to as a private operating foundation, hmm. and those are private foundations that actually deliver services. That would that would be the bridge structure. Uh, in in terms of how to go through that transition, uh, it's not something I have gone through or even heard of someone gone go through. Typically, uh, once someone starts, they're one or the other. You very rarely see any shifting uh, from from one to the other. It's it's an early stage decision that people tend to stick with. I, I guess that I guess that 
falls into the category of foundations hiring good legal and accounting counsel. That's right? right. They make they make sure that they're making the right decisions so they don't have to change it down the road. That's right. Although I frankly I had not heard of an operating foundation. So that's a useful that's a useful piece of information because it it sounds like technically you actually can sort of have your cake and eat it too. If if you want to be both on the on the funding side and the operational side, there is a vehicle available with which to do that. Yeah, what you give up is um, public charities have less government scrutiny and regulation because the government relies on the public to provide that. So your exchange there is you get some of the control you want of a private foundation, but what you give up is uh, you have someone looking over your shoulder more so than you would as a public charity. Now, what about an unhappy scenario in which a foundation is not for whatever reason, not working out. And, and the, the founders, I guess, I'm not sure what the term of art would be, but I guess the people in charge decide that it's time to, to just dissolve it or close it or whatever. Again, this reflects my ignorance. I don't even know what the term of art is, but you know, is there a way to in effect terminate a foundation? There is, and uh, it's much more complex than I could effectively describe. But what I, the general principle is the funds of that uh, entity are distributed into like entities or uh, entities that um, uh, are, are public charities. So um, that's, that's the process that it would go through uh, as it dissolves is I don't know of any process and, and, uh, you know, there may be an expert that knows more than me on this, where those assets end up in an individual's hands. I I think that's counter to everything uh, about the donation process and the donation structure and would be ripe for abuse. And so those, those funds uh, will then get distributed to uh, other private foundations or public charities. If, if there was a dissolution, (laughs) Yeah, and I would have to imagine if there were a way, if there were some legal mechanism by which funds might be returned to the initial grantors, that there would probably be significant tax penalties, um, as as well as very unpleasant conversations with the IRS itself. Pleasant, unex- pleasant, expensive, and unple- and uh, sorry, unpleasant and expensive and protracted conversations <laughs> with the IRS. No doubt about it. Um. Can a foundation can a foundation be transferred? And I guess this kind of gets into what you were talking about a little bit, but I, I want to be want to be clear if, as an alternative to terminating a foundation, could you simply find another foundation, for example, that wants to take on that mission, take over the governance, et cetera? Is that a is that a an avenue that's available? Yeah, definitely on the public charity side it is. Um I wouldn't say mergers are super common, but they are common enough that they happen, you know, happen on, on a regular basis. On the private foundation, I'm not sure if that's a merger process or that how that dissolution would occur. Um, that That's an area I don't know as much about. Okay. We're talking with Chris Yaden of the Unique Foundation, and the topic is, should I start a foundation? Um a lot is made about uh, how much principles of foundations and charities are are paid, right? That's a common 
uh, I guess, an easy target in some respects for the press. You know, um, CEO of Charity X makes wine number of dollars. Are there restrictions on how much foundations can pay, can compensate their employees, their board, et cetera? Uh, there are, but but it's um, very loose um, and is subject to a lot of uh, loopholes. Um, here, here's what I would take, uh, you know, as a takeaway for people that hear things like that. Um, a well-run nonprofit, whether it's a private foundation or a charity, is a business. And it, and it has to be run like a business. And you're competing, whoever you're going to have as your executive, you're competing with every other business that's out there. Because running a charity is very similar, if it's done right, to running any other business. 95% of it's the same. And um, so charities, if they want top-notch leadership, they have to pay not market rate, but they can't be a tenth of a market. So if you have an extremely large charity that's a multi-billion dollar charity, if they want the type of person that can run that charity, it's the same type of person that can run a multi-billion dollar corporation. And you're not going to get that person for $100,000. Right. You're just not. And so sometimes uh, there's an education uh, that needs to happen of the public of what's acceptable and that the market does govern it. And, uh, you know, what, what, what donors should be concerned about is when it's excessive. You know, when you see a brand new startup paying a million dollar salary to a CEO, something else is going on there. Yeah, you know, and 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 I think that public education is a really good point because, and again, you're the expert. You actually run and have been involved in these organizations much more than I have. But my own experience is is that a a a either a foundation or a charitable organization, for that matter, of any level of competence, is run very much like a business. And uh, frankly, I think they often have to do more with less. Um, but there's a there's a a notion out there that I'm, I'm not sure where it came with, but there's this assumption that that if you work for a nonprofit, then they sort of have their own romper room and everybody sort of sits on you know cushy bouncy chairs and everything else, and they they have six hour work days and 28 hour work weeks and so forth. But um, uh, you know most most charities that I'm aware of, certainly anyone with which I've been associated. You know, they work as hard and are under as much stress and strain as any startup and maybe more because the revenue models are so much more restricted. It's easy. It's a lot easier to raise money when your, your goal is to make profit than to raise money when your goal is not to make profit. And um, I guess that's just a long winded way of agreeing with you. But again, having having served as a board member, um, this 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 image of 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 uh, of executive directors and board members just just sort of taking money in and then living off of their largesse that you know that that's very much the exception rather than the rule yeah you're spot on uh, I, I i couldn't have said it any better um chris we're running out of time and i want to let you get back to kind of the rest of your day but i do have two more questions i want to get get to if we can and and one is um as a foundation are there restrictions on 
on funding sources. For example, um, you know, let, let's say there's a foreign funding source. You're not entirely familiar with it, but they want to write you a $50 million check as, as a foundation manager or foundation board. Do you have, do you have any obligation to kind of verify what the nature of that funding is, how, where that money came from and so forth to make sure it's not from a criminal source or a foreign terrorist agency or something like that, some form of money laundering, for example? Yeah, great question. So the, 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 the governance here um, is more governed by ethics, business ethics. So it, is there, can I accept a $50 million gift from an anonymous source that I've never met? The, the technical answer is yes, but I do have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility to um, to scrutinize where my funding has come from. Just, just like you would any business partnership with an investor. Uh, you know, when, they, when someone invests with you, they become part of your family, uh, whether that's a for-profit or a non-profit. And you want to make sure that your family is ethical and healthy and helpful. So, yes, there is an ethical responsibility. Depending on uh, the type of gift it is, there are some law, uh, regulations that, that govern giving, for example, as a public charity, uh, um, uh, if if someone gives you more than two percent of your five-year operating expenses, uh, that only uh, only up to two percent can be counted as a public gift, and the other is um, goes into a different calculation that re- you have to keep balanced as a public charity. So. I use that as a as a quick example. It's referred to as the one third test to give you a sense of what types of regulations there are. So balance in where funds come in is is part of regulation. But in terms of who you do business with, uh, it's important that any charity, just like any business, uh, scrutinize their partners from an ethical perspective. Right. Just just as we have a client acceptance process in our accounting firm. Um, probably it's probably a good idea to have a funding acceptance process of some kind within just because if nothing else, I mean, even, even if you put ethics for aside for a second, even though I, I wouldn't advise that if, if you accept money from someplace and then it turns out to come from a very bad source, right. That, that can be a foundation ending event. Yes. And uh, you know, the fact that you brought up a process is perfect. We have two, we have our grant making process where we do that scrutiny on any grants we receive. And then we have a partnership process for any, uh, any significant partnerships that we ask and answer certain types of ethics questions. Chris, this has been a neat conversation. Um, again, want to be respectful of, of, of your time and you've been so generous with, with your time today. If if there are topics that we didn't cover in as much depth as one of our listeners would have liked, or other to- questions I didn't think of to ask you, but they would have wished I'd asked, can they contact you to extend this conversation or expand the conversation? And if so, what's the best way to do so? Sure, be happy to visit with them. Um, best way to get a hold of me is through my email. I'm imagining you put them in the show notes, but it's C Yaden spelled Y is an apple D O N. Uh, at uniquefoundation.org. And that's Y-O-U-N-I-Q-U-E. Correct. 
That's going to wrap it up for today's program. And I'd like to thank Chris Yaden so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also, check out my new LinkedIn group called A Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.